Welcome to the Untold Talks of Spider-Man, where we'll be taking a look at the deep cuts and forgotten stories of the Spider-Man library, looking for lost gems, and what it truly means to be a Spider-Man story. We're your hosts, Kane Winstead. Matthew Derrigish. <laughs> Today's story is Marvel Knights Spider-Man number 1 through 12, written by Mark Miller and drawn by Terry Dodson with colors by Rachel Dodson. Frank Cho also filled in art duties on issues 5 and 8. Before we jump into the story, I want to give a little background information on this book and the Marvel Knights imprint line itself, uh, because it's weird and it has some bearing on the story. Uh, Marvel Knights started out as kind of a Hail Mary from Marvel after they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, the idea was that Joe Quesada, back before he was editor-in-chief, would edit a line of books with higher production quality and uh, without the constraints of necessarily following continuity in order to attract new talent that were that was flocking to these indie, indie publishers during the big indie boom in the 90s. Uh, it worked. Uh, they were wildly successful. And uh, once Joe Quesada became editor-in-chief, uh, largely in due to the success of this line, he brought a lot of those practices over to the Marvel Universe at large, which kind of diluted the impact, or not, not necessarily impact, but took away what the point of the Marvel Knights line was, because... As it turns out, a lot of these books fell into continuity or were kind of retroactively absorbed into the continuity of the later titles. Like in this, in Marvel Knight Spider-Man, that's Matt Gargan becomes Venom and that, that becomes a big point in Dark Reign. He becomes the Spider-Man of the Dark Reign. In about 2006, Marvel Knights stopped publishing ongoings and then moved on to doing limited series and from there we get stuff like Spider-Man Blue, Spider-Man Rain, Spider-Man Fever and it kind of fizzles out as time goes on with the last uh, limited series coming out in about 2013. As for Marvel Knights Spider-Man itself, as per Miller in the letter pages uh, at the end of issue 12, he said that Marvel Knights Spider-Man was pitched as a title where each creative team would get 12 issues on the book and then a new team would come in and give their individual take on the character to give kind of like a fresh spin on the title. This isn't really what happened. After he left, Reginald Hudlin was up next and he got five issues before the other happened and tied into Marvel Knights. Uh, after the other finished, Hudlin left and then the title was renamed Sensational Spider-Man since Marvel Knights was going to be focusing on limited series. The writer for that was Roberto Aguirre Sicasa, and that ran for 20 issues, and then the last issue was part one of One More Day, and then Mar uh, Sensational folded into Amazing for the three times a month publishing. And that's kind of the long history of the Marvel Knights publishing line. This was a little bit before I was started to collect. I was collecting comics. Uh, Matt, were you buying comics when these things were coming out? I was buying some comics, but I didn't pick up these Marvel Knights issues until they were in trade, and I could find them at the borders at the time. <laughs> All right. 
Yeah, it's it's a little confusing to follow just because they were originally pitched as out of continuity and now they are. I just did want to comment on that because you're right. It it really throws off the story that it's supposed to be out of continuity. And there's a lot of moments in this story that don't line up with continuity later. But there's also big plays that take part in the story that fold into continuity directly. And so this is a weird story to try to parse in line with Spider-Man continuity. I think it has some unique flavor for it, but it's also a little frustrating at the same time for that fact. I think the easiest way to point out that particular frustration is that this comic ends with Peter Parker finding out a way to get Aunt May to live back in her old house. And then the next issue is them living, or the next issue, the first issue of the Reginald Hublin run on this title has them in Avengers Tower. (laughs) so like like a large thorn i guess in not thorn but a plot kink in this is that and we'll get to a summary in a second is that mary jane overextends her credit by buying aunt may a condo in manhattan and by the end of the story they're able to get her back in her home in uh forest hills but then the next issue they're in the avengers tower I guess before I go too far off the rocker, Matt, how about you just go ahead and give us a breakdown and a quick summary of the storyline in the, these 12 issues? Because I, even though it is 12 issues and there are technically three arcs, they act m- more like acts in a play than arcs in a story comic or in a comic book because these it is definitely one long story. This story starts kind of like most Spider-Man comics do, you know, there's a fight, there's some bad guys, there's some characters from the rogues gallery. And then things quickly spin up into Peter realizing that who's targeting him is targeting him and not Spider-Man. And so he has to worry about someone knowing his identity, but he doesn't know who. And so he he sends out Mary Jane and Aunt May is kidnapped, which is kind of the telling card of someone knowing his identity. And a lot of stuff happens in the middle. Yeah, the the middle, I I really feel like it loses its way in the middle. So you start out with a fight with the Green Goblin and then Aunt May gets kidnapped. And then Peter accuses the Green Goblin. He's like, I've been in jail the whole time. And then a whole bunch of stuff happens in the middle, like Venom, or I'm sorry, Eddie Brock sells the Venom symbiote. Uh, Peter and and MJ go to a class reunion. There's something with the, the Vulture trying to steal money from the Owls so he can pay for his grandkids' leukemia. Like... And so all of the all of this yeah. sounds like it should be its own arc or like its own story, but it's woven in this the grand narrative of Aunt May getting kidnapped and Peter trying to find where she is. Right. A bunch of the other villains pop in for quick points too. I mean, we have the shocker for a moment, Electro. You know, Dr. Octopus has a whole thing in here related to Norman Osborn really quickly that just jumps right to the end. And I I think we just have to jump to the end here because it ties together this whole story in a way that's 
interesting. Well, it's difficult to talk about the story and not talk about the ending, I think, is because it's a mystery story. So you can talk around the the ending, but the story is not going to make sense without the context. So if you haven't read it and you care about the spoilers, we're about to jump into the spoilers. This comic is available in trade. It's available on Unlimited. It's available on Comixology. I was able to pick up the individual issues really cheap. So whichever route you want to go, this one's pretty readily available. So that's it. That's your spoiler warning. Continue out your own risk. Spoilers, it was Norman Osborn the whole time. <laughs> oh my I, I know, right? Um, so I, I know you had some words about this particular ending. Right. Well, because this starts off and your first impulse is, oh, well, it's the Green mm-hmm. Goblin. Because who else would it be? And then there's this whole, it's like half an issue with all this other stuff going on. This is half an issue of them sitting down. Spider-Man sees Norman. Norman does the whole creepy in jail, but it couldn't be me. I've been in jail thing. And you're still like, ah, he's pulling some strings. Like he's connected still somehow, but it can't just be him, right? Like they, they're going to all this pain. There's no hint or tut. But the minute Spider-Man leaves, you know, he has this grin and there's a green light going across his face he tells he tells peter that he told someone else his secret and a large a large part of the mystery is kind of figuring out like who did he tell and he tells matt gargan uh the scorpion the problem with that is it's not gargan who was scorpion and is now venom by the time we get to that point in the story who's the third venom in the story because gargan is acting purely as osborne's right. lackey like he, it, it's the same as osborne doing it just through his hands it's not gargan taking this information concocting his own plan which would be more interesting if you have scorpion or now venom which i think makes it less interesting on its face because they consider eddie brock from right. the get-go okay i, I definitely i definitely see right. your point there that at the end of the day, it's still it's still a Green Goblin plot. And, you know, the plot is kind of like this. The conspiracy is that Spider-Man and Norman Osborn had, according to Norman, a gentleman's agreement, which I never quite got. And Matt's shaking his head that Spider-Man would never put Norman in jail and Norman would never really betray the trust in that he knows Spider-Man's identity. And so when he goes into jail, one of his dead man switches, I guess, goes off and Scorpion knows to kidnap Aunt May and that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. All of this is because there is a secret cabal, New World Order types, who control all the supervillains and and pay them off to only fight particular superheroes so that the superheroes don't form some sort of like world government to overthrow the people am am i am i right like is that what was going on and so like norman norman's worried that if he's in jail he's gonna be hit like they're gonna be like a hit's gonna go out for him by these new world order types because he's kind of he knows too much or something like is that what it was so more or less, yes, the, the idea is, and this happens, I should say, and this is the moment of the comic that I remember distinctly from the first time I read it, because it was, I, I thought it was cool the first time I read it in a way, but it was also supposed to be out of continuity, 
at the time. So I was like, oh, that's a nifty idea. You're right. It's this cabal secret society sort of idea, which was, I believe, Mark Miller's way of being like, the Marvel Universe makes no sense if you try to apply any like real world logic to it. So why are these goofy people in costumes beating up on each other time and time again? Why doesn't Captain America ever just wing his shield at the vulture, give him a muscle cramp and have him fall down? Or why do they always fight the same people? And so he's like, okay, there has to be this conspiracy. And it would basically be set up where there's like these secret clubs and it would manufacture to who's fighting who. Which I think is an interesting idea that kind of works within the Spider-Man villain set and maybe like some of the Captain America and whatnot. But where that hits for me very bizarrely is there kind of already is some secret cabals in the Marvel Universe. Things like the Hellfire Club or whatnot that have their own weirdo agendas that this wouldn't line up with, but they'd have to interplay with this. Also, this would predate Spider-Man as a character and go back through the entirety of Marvel history. So it's this bizarre idea for a retcon that is never to my knowledge brought up again. probably because it's a dumb idea <laughs> right if i can be so blunt especially in the spider-man novel or i'm sorry not novel spider-man story where you have characters like the rhino who went on and fought the hulk in a bunch of stuff or sandman who became part of the frightful four and fought the fantastic four a lot a lot of spider-man's villains kind of got shopped around uh in in the 70s and 80s i I don't know like it was just difficult for me to buy and i kind of checked out at that point of the story and it's all so it can lead into the sinister 12 where you know all of spider-man's big villains show up really kind of lean in on spider-man until the first deus ex machina of the story appears. Yes, and to comment on that, that Sinister 12 thing hit me sideways too, the second time reading, because this story has what I consider to be the number one problem that you see in fan fiction or when these creators get to do their take of the hero, is they want to just run through the rogues gallery and have all their favorite villains there. But for having them all there you don't really get to serve any of them properly or make any of them seem like a credible threat. In this case, all of them are being controlled by the whim of Norman Osborn, which means he's the big bad, with the notable exception of Dr. Octopus, which we'll get into in a moment. But they are all there. And so what's worse than the Sinister Six? The Sinister Twelve. It's twice as bad. At least six of them basically are just here in this final showdown and maybe showed up for a hot minute earlier, but basically don't play I think a part. my favorite one is the chameleon who's just literally standing there doing nothing and uh what's the chameleon gonna do in like a grand melee like oh look i can i, I look like spider-man now he's he's not really someone you bring to a larger brawl well he he could throw a punch i mean he's a russian dueler i think he has some sort of training and all that but i mean boomerang's there what's he gonna do throw a boomerang <laughs> i guess because what does he ever do but he literally is in the background right. here. And was he really a just a Spider-Man villain? I remember thinking of him as kind of a generic Marvel. Who, Boomerang? Yeah. I mean, he's Boomerang. He throws a Boomerang. Uh, 
Flash has a guy who throws a boomerang, so Marvel's got to have a boomerang guy, too. That's just how it goes. At least DC's is Australian. <laughs> okay, now why couldn't they just fold the kangaroo into Marvel's boomerang guy? I mean, let's just go full stereotype there. He's a kangaroo guy that throws boomerangs and has a koala that comes out of his pouch? Oh, that's just... <laughs> There we go. House of Ideas right here. There we go. Uh, we'll, we'll go ahead. We'll, we'll draw it with crayons, send it to Marvel. We'll say from Kane and Matt, age six, and see see if they'll print it in the back. And just to note this here, too, the lizards here, basically just in the background, has had no part, mm -hmm. really. And it's the lizard. Why is the lizard there? How did he coerce the lizard? Like, that's a story right there that they've dealt with. Like, Dan Slott did that in Ends of the Earth. The way you coerce the lizard is an interesting maneuver that was a big part of the story. You know, enough of beating up on the Sinister Twelve. Let's get to this final battle on a bridge in new york city i can never remember which one's the actual bridge because i've never been to new york anyway norman kidnaps mary jane brings her to a bridge hat fights spider-man it's a replay of you know the night gwen stacy died and intentionally so it's it's not like mark miller feels like he's trying to do anything new here and while that's going on Aunt May is buried underground alive. Uh, yes. So you have that play. But he doesn't realize that until after the fight's over where Mary, or I'm sorry, where Aunt May is. Um, but Norman has Spider-Man on the ropes and then out of nowhere for the second Deus Ex Machina of this uh, fight, the first one being the Avengers showing up to take down the Sinister 12, Doc Ock shows up out of nowhere and holds back Norman Osborn so Peter can fire his webs at all of Mary Jane's major joints when she falls off the bridge so that he doesn't snap her neck. And then for the third and final Deus Ex Machina of the story, Spider-Man pulls Mary Jane up, they hug, and he's like, oh, you didn't die. And then Norman's holding holding the, the goblin glider over his head, about to like impale them both. And then he gets struck by lightning. And that's it. That, the fight's over. Norman gets struck by lightning. Not only does Norman Osborn get struck by lightning, but Dr. Octopus, who had some mental contraption on him that Osborn contracted to get him to play along, was broken earlier in the fight. So Octavius was coming for Osborn, and they are both simultaneously uh, that's right yeah so lightning. both of them are dispatched they recover doc ock the next day and norman disappears so it's a dubla <laughs> ex machina it's 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 a lot and like we, we've been kind of rough on it so far but I, I felt like there were some pretty enjoyable elements in this honestly one of the most enjoyable parts of this for me wasn't the comic itself but like i i mentioned earlier i went out and just bought the individual issues of this rather than the trade which i think you're reading it from or or marvel unlimited because i just hate having money apparently it's just a fun nostalgic throwback to open up an issue and see on the interior of the front cover an ad for alias and then the first <laughs> the first exchange in the comic are like two nobodies arguing about Legally Blonde 2 and the merits of VHS versus DVD. I'm like, wow, man, 2004 just hit me like a ton of bricks. Matt and I share show notes, reader notes when we're going through books. And I also noticed that the first one he, he put down was Legally Blonde 2 as well. So uh, underrated classic, by the way, Legally Blonde 1 and 2. 
I will agree with Miller via these like bodega workers that it's it's not just something you can simply write off as a chick flick. It's 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 a really good movie. But that's that's for the uh, Untold Talks of Renee Zellweger podcast. <laughs> or was that Reese so. Witherspoon? Uh, whatever. <laughs> what what were some of the enjoyable elements you, you, you had here? Well, we learned a fun fact about Uncle Ben that he left the door open when he peed, which didn't make Aunt May very happy. <laughs> well, I, l- l- let me interrupt you for a second, you know, while, while you launch into your point. <laughs> Sorry. That, that was something that I wanted to, like, kind of talk about a little bit was that the Marvel Knights line kind of was supposed to be the little bit, like, the more mature, darker imprint. The way that manifests a lot in here is just references to, like, Uncle Ben peed with the door open. It, it was it was always, like, in, like, really weird ways that seemed to almost be, like, winking at you, like, this it, you, these ain't your dad's comics. We talk about cocaine. If you go into this thinking that you're going to get, like, necessarily, like, a dark spider-man you're gonna be better served to go probably back to those like dimatea stories i think is is gonna be the closest you're gonna find to a darker spider-man or a more like complex spider-man this is gonna be more like your pg-13 mtv spider-man back to the original point you're trying to make when we're talking about the broader strokes of this story it's really easy as we did to fall on i i feel like that's where the negative parts of this lie the movement and small storytelling bits of the story are actually really fun except for the some parts that are just a little too juvenile as we just went through but this is a dotson comic so everything is beautiful to look at And there's a lot of small moments that resonate really well. And there is another plot point that we skimmed over that we didn't talk about too much, but Mary Jane in here has a gun. That plays in a little bit. It's an interesting point to kind of talk about it in these comics that she's constantly put into these different situations. The idea of her defending herself makes sense to the character, but is rarely explored though never really feels enabled for it it just feels like it's dangerous that she has a gun but she's never able to really use it to much effect though she's shooting at the green goblin and all these other characters that uh guns don't stop anyways which kind of confuses the whole point from the get-go is that she's dealing with spider-man villains regularly and they typically aren't phased by guns that was something they they brought up a lot in this was I think two or three different times they mentioned that Norman Osborn is bulletproof, like his skin deflects bullets, and like Spider Man's the one who says this, and yet Mary Jane's like I've got a gun, and at this point I think he knows that Norman Osborn's behind it, and he he doesn't mention like that's not going to do anything. It's it's it's, it's like a nine millimeter like. <laughs> let's get you something with a little bit more punch and then she ends up shooting norman at during the big climactic battle and that's what knocks her off the bridge i don't know like yeah she has a gun so she's gonna have to use it at some point because a russian playwright said so i just felt like it could have been employed a little bit better because this is not the first time something like this happens i feel like mary jane having a gun is a is something that happens occasionally across the line of spider-man titles right it's hard to parse like you said this is very much a 2004 comic and reading this now it just feels (laughs) a little tone deaf 
Like, of course she'd just get a gun, and right now it's like, I don't think someone just gets a gun, but this was a different time. Speaking it's... of tone deaf, so you have all these police officers just kind of jumping on Spider-Man, and like, oh no, we gotta, we gotta get him, because there's a plot line in this where Spider-Man gets beat up and put in the hospital, his mask is ripped, and an orderly gets a photo, gives it to Jameson, and Jameson runs a $5 million reward put up anonymously by Norman Osborn for Spider-Man's identity. And so after Spider-Man dispatches Doc Ock, a SWAT team like jumps him trying to arrest him on Trump arrest him on trumped up charges so that they can pull his mask off and get the five million. Speaking of like, you know, reading it in 2018, not to get political or anything, it, it definitely seemed like a little tone deaf these days did you have any particular feelings about what goes on with venom throughout this arc the venom storyline was completely unnecessary and detracted from the the weavings of the aunt may kidnap plot line they put it there just so that they could get rid of the red herring i guess uh, because like you said originally mary jane and peter think that it's venom and then the next issue is eddie brock Saying, like, I'm about to die. Selling the Venom symbiote, which is kind of a a weird arc that the character takes. Because he's, you've got, I think the year before this, you've got Jenkins did a story. I can't remember the name of it right now. Where he reveals that Eddie Brock has cancer. And the Venom symbiote is feeding off the cancer. And without the symbiote... Brock would die very quickly. And so in this one kind of off panel in between those stories, he has a crisis of faith and realizes that he needs to come clean and get rid of the symbiote. And he's going to sell proceeds from selling the symbiote is going to go to a charity. And he's okay with selling it because he figures the symbiote is just going to find a new host anyway. And then it looks like he gets killed off. It looks like he commits suicide, but then he comes back later in the Back in Black era, I think, with another story where he tries to kill Aunt May in the hospital while she's in a coma from her gunshot wounds. And then Brand New Day happens and he becomes anti-venom. This is, this is like the, the middle section for a very weird time for the Eddie Brock character. Like, I definitely think Miller was just trying to kill him off because he never... It, it Seemingly, like, he seemed like, well, this, this character has all the stories it's going to tell. As far as selling it to... It's just some random mob boss's son. Angelo Fortano. Yeah, as far as selling it to Angelo, like, I thought that was interesting. It was kind of a fun way to see how the Venom symbiote reacted on its own away from, from Eddie. I mean, it just straight up murders the guy. Like, it abandons him mid-web mid swing. Now we've got a Venom story where the, the Venom symbiote is good... And we've learned that all the, the symbiotes themselves are good. And it's just the, the negative feelings of Eddie Brock is what made this one evil. I don't know how much I like that uh, the current turn for like the symbiotes. But this, this was more in line with what I would expect from the, the Venom symbiote. And so it was interesting to, to kind of see it get to play by itself. Uh, what, what did you think about it? The Venom arc is interesting. As you detailed, there's the first churn with Eddie Brock, which is bizarre. I liked the idea that the Venom suit was like eating the cancer and then keeping him alive. I thought that was a good churn, but then for him to just be like, no, I'm just gonna 
die now. I don't, I don't think there's any way to earn that. So he just decided to make it a crisis of faith and move on. But even then, if he's trying to be holier than thou, the way he talks to the mob bosses when he's selling this thing off in a black market auction is still very villainesque. That part never sold for me. But then the idea of the Venom reacting immaturely to this Angelo character is just a mob boss who's really just kind of a bully. Like, he's been a little wimp kid all his life but his dad wants him to be you know real man which means pushing people around basically and so he starts doing that in the minute spider-man stands up to him meanwhile you know peter's in the middle of a high school reunion so this idea of the bully narrative plays right in it was an interesting turn but then the venom suit's gone from him and then goes to mark gargan and this to me is my favorite part of this arc because it's the only part that's original it's not replaying a greatest hits of Spider-Man's past. What kills me about it is a lot of the story is building up to, okay, who knows Spider-Man's identity that didn't before? Oh, it's Mark Gargan, how did he find out? Well, Osborne told him, but you didn't need Osborne to tell him because the Venom symbiote comes to him and he could have found out there. So if we had this grand play and then it was Gargan elevating this character's status from schlub to credible threat with just a little bit of knowledge and that was the difference that it took, I think would have been a much more interesting story that could have been more focused and allowed these various threads to come together in a more cohesive way. The way it just played out was just, well, no, Green Goblin has to fight Spider-Man. Venom stuff definitely feels ancillary like it like you said like it could have there, there are a lot of different ways it could have been woven better into this into this story but at the end of the day i, I don't know if your trade has the letter the letter page at the end miller talks about how his first spider-man comic was 122 goblin's last stand and how part of this was him revisiting that and working through the what he called trauma <laughs> of, of reading it from the get-go this was always going to be a green goblin story and this was always going to be about the goblin's last stand so why we took a four issue detour for this b plot about venom that didn't really tie into that i'm not i don't know why other than he had 12 issues and he needed to fill space the the one thing that really miffed me about the story and it's kind of a thing in miller's writing is the gotcha moment which thankfully comes in the middle of an issue rather than as a cliffhanger where venom rips out spider-man's heart but it turns out that it's one of these people trying to fake a spider-man reveal to get the five million from jameson but the way it's paneled there is no way to like there, there's there's no there's no point where you could turn back and be like oh i see where the switch happened no the way it's paneled it just looks like he rips out peter parker's heart and then you turn the page like oh no that was a different spider-man that also happened to be standing on this rooftop who you know and all the like all the the letterer and the letter it looks like the letterer didn't get the note and just it just looks like it was peter parker the whole time and it's I mean, that's kind of, I'm kind of rambling on this point, but it's, it's just, you know, respect the reader a little bit more than that. If you're going to have this big gotcha moment, at least set it up so that there's like something, something there. Again, I just, we keep coming to it and we keep finding these points that just don't seem to add up or aren't sold well throughout the story. 
And when I'm reading it, I don't feel as negative about it. And I really feel it's because the Dotsons generally are such strong storytellers with their art that a lot of it slides through. I feel like if you had any lesser artistic talent on this book, your average comic book artist on this, this wouldn't hold any of the love that it initially got or have any of the legacy I think that it does. Because I think this is a fairly well-pointed-to Spider-Man run, from my understanding. It's definitely not one that people rail on. Like it's 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 no it's no soul of the hunter. I haven't heard a lot of people talk about this, but when I do, it's generally in positive terms. And I would say that generally positive is how I feel about this at the end of the day. It's just by nature of going in and doing like an exegesis of the whole thing, we're going to get into the the sticking points since there are 12 issues in this, there are a lot of them. Ultimately, I, you know, I, I enjoyed the, the, this comic. And there's one more element that I think maybe has played a bit better that we haven't hit on somehow. And that's the black cat is in here throughout the majority of the story. I think she creates an interesting point in contrast to the rest of what's going on. So when she starts out, uh, it's because Spider-Man calls her because he needs help and he sent everyone away and she comes in. But our first dramatic moment is Spider-Man's passed out, Black Cat's taking care of her, and Mary Jane comes in. Peter's worried that Mary Jane's going to think that he's falling for her? Some sort of infidelity or fooling around. Like, there's definitely, like, I wouldn't go so far to call it a love triangle aspect to this, but you do have the end where Peter kind of realizes that, like, oh man, Felicia still has feelings for me. And that plays into a lot of her interactions between Peter and Mary Jane does a good job, I think, of amping up the drama and the tension in that as in the the Peter Mary Jane aspect of this story, uh, where Peter keeps trying to push Mary Jane away, and Mary Jane keeps saying like, "No, I'm in this with you." Yeah, I, I definitely think that her inclusion, Black Cats, uh, in this story is definitely a positive because you also kind of get at the end a little foil in that you know Spider Man has to bust Norman or norman osborne out of jail and so he has a kind of partner in crime with black cat who's always kind of straddled that line between you know good and bad so to have her there helps a little like helps the the viability of spider-man going into breaking into rikers and it it gave that moment a little twist too because she says you know you don't have to do this because there's this whole contrived reason why Peter thinks he needs to break Norman out in order to save Aunt May, which he basically does in order to figure mm-hmm. out where she is. But Felicia says, you don't have to do this. I can get him out and then you don't have to be there. And he says, you know, no, I'm in it. We need to do this together. Being the good guy, breaking a right. felon out of jail. <laughs> It's just a weird moment, and if she wasn't there to kind of play on this criminal part, but to, I, I think that trying to save him was a good character moment. It made this kind of on stilts, crazy plot sell better because we were had, having these small character moments within it. I, I feel that's a fair assessment of this entire story arc. So many good character beats really push along a, I'm not going to say middling story, but... Definitely something that has a few holes. Uh, before we <clears throat> before before we close out completely, what did you think about the, the the vulture subplot where the vulture is this like kind and doting grandfather, and, and uh, like of course his grandson has like 
uh, some, you know, like a terminal illness. And then, of course, Peter ends up in the diner where Vulture's daughter-in-law, I, I guess, uh, you know, works. And, of course, you find out she's really nice. And, of course, you find out that she's about to lose her job. Did you feel like that was a little too coincidental? Or did you feel that was earned? Or was it just, like, part of me hated it? <laughs> just because, like, it was so coincidental and like even the narrations like of course this would happen to you know down on his luck peter parker parker luck blah, 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 blah. i don't know like there's just something so fun about seeing the vulture pushing like a kid on a swing and like you can like almost see like the norman rockwell like painting of like the vulture's happy family and like right right you know when a few issues earlier he's like snapping nurses necks just for for whatever yeah i guess that's what right. i mean in that like there are just like fun little character moments that push what would be not the best storytelling this was another example of where I just wish there was two issues aside that dealt with this vulture thing. Because the vulture's an irredeemable villain in this story, more so than right. he normally is. And then they have this turn where, but he takes care of his family. <laughs> the char- the characterization's interesting, but the, again, the plot of it drags it down. And you're right, of course he goes into this diner at this exact hour for what's potentially... This one of the few of this woman's last shifts. It's so coincident. Like, usually the Parker luck is bad luck or whatnot, but this is some bad lucky penny, like, unbelievable stuff. And the fact that they even have the conversation that ties her to the vulture at all feels bizarre. I mean, I guess he's showing up in his Spider-Man suit. What else are they going to talk about but the one person they know? But I don't know. It would have been more impactful if there's a better way to wind around this idea that the Vulture's taking care of some people. He's doing these crimes for mm-hmm. a reason. With him being set up as this irredeemable monster, it's like, oh, he's taking care of one kid, but he killed three people's moms potentially, you know, the day before. So there's no empathy there. So it's like, oh, no, you got to lock him up and someone else is going to have to take care of this kid, I guess. Right. Like, you know, it's it's funny that we're we're wanting more issues and I do want more issues, you know, for the story when it's very decompressed and already, you know, running runs about four issues too long. But at the same time, there there's definitely like things that you could explore out of out of these plot threads that just never get picked up because we got to deal with Venom instead. I think part of it is, uh, with my understanding of the larger body of Mark Miller's work, he's not the guy to write these stories. Wait, what do you what do you mean by that? Just, he tends to focus on big ideas or wants these big elaborate plots. He, he wants right. the big okay. story, and that's what he tends okay, to do. Okay, I, I follow you. Yeah, I, I thought you meant he was, like, ghostwriting it. <laughs> or had a ghostwriter or something. Yeah, no, oh. no, no, I, I definitely, definitely, I mean, like, yeah, he's the guy who has the, the you know, the Avengers 2, like, you know, Washington DC explodes and and everything. So yeah, definitely I definitely follow you there. He's not he's not who you call when you want, you know, dialogue heavy, character driven stuff. He's he's what you call when you want a movie that's gonna turn into uh, when you want a comic that's gonna turn into a movie script. Alright, well I I think we've I think we've gone on long enough about this. Hit me with your letter grade. For this one, I think I'd give it a solid C. C. All right, I was I was going to go with a B minus, 
So we're gonna we're gonna move on to the the second round of scoring. Would you think this one is worth remembering, or should it remain untold? I think this one should remain untold and let how Mark Gargan got the Venom suit be be a mystery. It's stronger that way. <laughs> well, I would say I'm a little bit on the fence on this one because it's included with the Marvel Unlimited. I would say it's worth it's worth your time, maybe not your money. Would you would you say that's fair? Oh, that's very fair. It's a fun breezy read. Yeah, it's a fun breezy read. You know, would I suggest doing what I did and going out and buying each individual issue? Uh, probably not. Try to find maybe a more economical way to do it. But I just wanted them because the Dodson art, and then and then you get like a little bit of Frank Cho mixed in. It's just it's good stuff. It's if there's good art. I'm going to want to have a physical copy of it because I like looking at the physical art rather than looking at the art on the screen. It just looks better that way, and that's just my personal taste. So I'm going to also go with Untold unless you're able to read it through a subscription service that you're already using. All right, thanks everyone for listening. That's going to be it for Marvel Knights Spider-Man issues 1 through 12. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe to us via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or subscribe directly via our RSS feed, which you can find a link to on superiorspidertalk.com. If you really enjoyed the show, feel free to give us a review on your platform of choice. And if you really, really enjoyed the show, uh, you can consider becoming a Patreon of The Amazing Spider Talk. $3.99 a month gets you exclusive access to Matt's and my Spider-Man B-Title reviews, as well as The Amazing Spider Talk's reviews of Amazing Spider-Man. You can also pledge $10 a month instead and on top of that, receive two commissioned art pieces from Spider-Man artists per year. Uh, the most recent one was a Ron Friends after Steve Ditko, and it was phenomenal. I get goosebumps every time I see it. It's totally worth the money. You can trust me, I'm a completely unbiased source here. If you want a glimpse into my incredibly boring life, you can see all of my retweets and liked tweets under the handle at KaneWrites. Uh, I don't actually tweet many things very often, but I am a serial retweeter. Uh, Matt, where can our listeners find you? You can find me online on Twitter at MagicalMatt42. You can also find me in the Amazing Spider Slack, which is a Slack channel we've set up for our followers of the Amazing Spider Talk oeuvre. It is a lot of fun. We have a lot of good discussions there. Uh, a lot of bragging, too. Uh, all in good fun. People posting their collections, uh, posting their finds. The, the, the toy chat is always fun because I always get uh, have a blast seeing the figures that everyone gets. You can also, of course, follow our show on Twitter under the handle at Untold Talks SPMN. You can follow us on Facebook. Just search Untold Talks of Spider-Man. Or you can also email the show with any questions, comments, concerns, rants, raves, etc. at untoldtalksofspiderman at gmail.com. There's no hyphen in that Spider-Man, but we do know better. And that's about it for today's episode. Matt, why don't you tell our listeners what we'll be covering next? We'll be looking over the classic Web of Spider-Man number 82, Pumping Up, written by Kurt Busiek and pencils by Ron Wilson. 
And if you're wondering why we're calling that a classic, that's the entire point of the show. <laughs> so it's a fun little issue, and I'm excited about that. Until conveniently timed lightning finishes all of Spider-Man's fights, make mine untold. That's why JJ pays me the big bucks. Say cheese!